Last week we began a message that turned into a two-part series. A message about the biblical priority of giving to the poor and whose responsibility is it to provide for the materially poor in a land, in a nation. It's very important for us to consider this because If you look at those in the social justice movement, then they will say that a living wage is the right of every individual within a society. And if someone does not have a living wage, then it is the responsibility of those in society to see that that is provided. Now, that sounds good and it sounds just and it sounds fair until you read biblical passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where it says, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. And so when we look at the whole issue of Poverty, it is a very complex issue because there are those within a nation like the United States of America who are impoverished and it's their own fault. It's their own fault. They perhaps have engaged in criminal activities and have limited their abilities to earn a living. Perhaps they're just lazy and they don't want to work and so they lose jobs. And the biblical principles are there that if someone is refusing to work, if they're not willing to work, then they're not to be given handouts because hunger is a good motivator. The biblical principles are built into the very creation in the created order. And that is, in a general sense, if someone is more diligent, they're more likely to be blessed materially. The Proverbs goes through that over and over again. Now, there are nations and entire societies where there is such corruption that people cannot get ahead unless they are corrupt. So you look at some of the poorest nations on the face of the earth, like in sub-Sahara Africa, and the majority of those nations have absolutely corrupt governments. Or they have factions that are in power who rob and extort and steal. And one of the wisdom areas in regard to giving to charities that send funds and stuff to those types of areas is that you have to find a way to get the food, supplies, or funds actually to the people who need them. And that very rarely happens in many of these nations because those who are in power take it all for themselves. So are there many places in the world where there is true poverty, where there's true corruption, where there's true oppression? Yes, there are. We don't see that as much in the United States of America. But if you were to listen to those on the left in the social justice movement, you would think that the United States of America is the most corrupt nation on the face of the earth and that there are people living in squander and starving to death within our borders in in mass and it's our fault 
That's not reality. Are there those in the United States who are truly hungry and it's not their own fault? Yes, there are. But that's not the majority. And you just look at facts and statistics and it proves that out. One of the things that I really encourage you to do, it's very important. Any of you who ever hear any news, if you're on social media, you're bombarded with this. If you're listening to news programs, if you're watching mainstream media networks, you're going to be bombarded with statistics and figures which make it look like in the United States of America that there's this high level of poverty and high level of people truly impoverished and truly suffering. The problem is when you break down their statistics and facts, it doesn't always prove to be the case. So, for instance, there was a man, he was a Nobel laureate, and he writes an, he writes an essay, peer-reviewed and published, in which he says there are 5.7 or so million people in the United States of America that are living on only $4 a day. They only make $4 a day. And that this is, you know, it's wrong, it, it's insane, and we have to do something about it. Well, you read something like that, Nobel laureate, this, wow, you know, research, this must be the case. 5.7 million people, $4 a day in the United States, that's insane. We've got to do something about this as a society. Well, here's the problem. They very, sometimes I think it has to be deliberately because the information is out there and you can just look it up for yourself with an instant Google search. They very conveniently ignore the other facts that show what's really going on in the majority of the instances. Facts such as with these 5.7 million, 5 million people. Number one, they didn't include in the $4 a day any type of government welfare or assistance that these 5.7 million people might be receiving. And so how many of those 5.7 million people are on SNAP and they get government-assisted food provision? How many of them are on any type of disability? How many of them ever use Medicaid? How many just go down the line? They didn't include any of that. And they're just $4 a day, that's it. They're not including any of that. Secondly, they didn't include in any of those statistics the household income of any of these individuals who are cohabiting. So if they've got a roof over their head and they're living with a girlfriend or something like that and she's got a job and so she's paying for the food and everything, they didn't include that. So they're like, we're living on $4 a day. How can anybody do that? Well, if they're living with somebody who has a job or, in their, or, or they're in a household that has four or five individuals in it and three of those individuals have a job and are paying the bills and whatnot, you see it totally changes. But that's what you get. You get all of this spin. Just be aware of that. Do the research. Do the research. Before, you, before we pass on anything on social media, fact check it. <laughs> okay, before we quote things, fact check and try and get all sides of the issue. If it's something on the right, check it on the left. If it's something on the left, check it on the right. Try and find reliable sources.
There's a lot of misinformation that's floating around. This morning we looked at several passages of Scripture and we emphasized again, like I did at the beginning of last message, that the Bible teaches us that we as believers ought to be the most generous of people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it speaks of Jesus who made himself poor that we might be made rich. And it says God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us to give cheerfully. We talked about the example of Zacchaeus who not only said he was going to pay back four times over the provision of the law, what was required in the law, those that he had extorted money from, but he also said, I'm going to give 50% of everything I have to care for the poor. And then we've also noted the reality that at the time of Jesus, when the Bible talks about being poor, it meant those who literally are subsisting day in and day out, literally hand to mouth, literally they're trying to come up with food and clothing. Okay. The Bible makes much provision for those that are truly needy and truly poor. In the law, it said that you were not to hold overnight the wages of somebody until the next day. The reason for that was there were those who were day laborers and they had to have that food or that money in order to eat. And so you don't delay paying them. You pay them the same day. Otherwise, they don't eat that day. Okay. The biblical principle is in effect there that you pay your employees in a timely fashion. My brother Ben and I were working on a construction crew one winter. And there was a snowstorm and we couldn't. None of us could work on the crew for about a week or so. And we were owed wages for the previous week. The snowstorm hit in such a way we weren't able to get paid. And so the next week, when everybody can finally get out and move around, I call up our boss and say, hey, can we get our paychecks? And he says, I don't have it. Well, what do you mean you don't have it? I sent it. I'll go ahead and pay you guys when we get the next draw. Well, you know what? That's theft. That wasn't his money. We earned it. He owed it to us. His thinking was, well, I needed it, and so I spent it. No, you don't do that. If you're an employer and you owe wages to your employees, it doesn't matter if you're starving to death. You do not spend that money on yourself. It's not yours. It's simply not yours, and it's theft to do otherwise. Well, we weren't truly poor, thankfully. Still living at mom and dad's. And so we didn't starve. Mom and dad saw to it that we were fed. Praise the Lord. But there are those who are truly needy. And the Bible has much to say to employers as well as to those who are employees. There was a movement in the 20th century that is called the social gospel movement. 
So as as well as those that are the progressive left and you have many who don't even profess to be Christians in that group, you have some who profess to be Christians in that group with all of their false thinking and teaching. Much, if not most, of the mainline denominations in the United States of America bought into this social gospel movement and abandoned the true gospel of Jesus Christ decades ago. The reality is that the majority of United Methodist churches, UMC churches, PCUSA churches, Christian churches, the majority of those churches don't teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They promote what is called the social gospel and their denominations latched onto this decades ago. The social gospel movement came about during the industrial era. Industrialization, you had... Steam engines, the combustion engine comes in into uh, play in the world. And technological advances are just rising, like in the United States of America. And the workforce is transitioning from being agriculturally based to being more, um, you know, mechanical factory based production. And what happens in the midst of that initially is that as this transition is taking place, you had some of the manufacturers and their companies which are, who are exploiting the poor. And you had sweatshops, you had child labor, you had very little government regulation at that point. And so things were very oppressive in the United States of America even for many who were working in these factories. They worked long hours, very little pay, very dangerous conditions, and something needed to be done. Well, there were those such as Walter Rauschenbusch. I'm going to read just a portion of an article from study.com here in a course that's taught about the industrial era. Says, enter Walter Rauschenbusch, a New York City pastor and theologian who dedicated himself to revising the American or the attitude of American Christians. He believed that the church's agenda had replaced Jesus' agenda, which he called the kingdom of God. Rauschenbusch taught that the duty of Christians, quote, is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. Like-minded Protestant leaders agreed with Rauschenbusch that social problems are actually just moral problems on a large scale, and they aggressively persuaded middle and upper-class citizens that many social issues could be cured by what they called practical Christianity. In a nutshell, they believed that if they met the physical needs of the poor, it would transform them spiritually and morally and help them improve their lives. And so what happened in the social gospel is texts like Jesus, when he preached his sermon in Nazareth, 
and he said, I have come to preach the gospel to the poor. They translated that as Jesus came to reach out to the materially impoverished. And then they began to equate, conflate the gospel of Jesus Christ with combating poverty. And so if you are combating poverty, attacking poverty, you are preaching and living out the gospel. But remember, the first message that I preached in this series was on what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God has made provision for wicked, rebellious sinners through the completed work of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not in any way, shape or form the idea that we are going to be either wealthy or have all of our material needs met in this life. That is foreign to the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as a result of the gospel work of Jesus Christ, we are promised that one day we will be in paradise and all woes of all kinds will be demolished. And that while we wait for that day, we are to be generous people who reach out to those who are poor and needy and suffering in this life with the love of Christ, but giving soup and a sandwich to a starving person is not giving them the gospel. You cannot give someone the gospel without giving them words. Because are we are we saved by good works? No, we're not. But are we saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, we are. So the gospel is not based on our works. It is based on the work that God has done in Jesus. Okay. But as a result of us being transformed by the gospel, we are to be generous people. But what has happened, what happened as a result of this social gospel movement is that all of a sudden sin was not a matter of personal, independent rebellion against God that leaves us all condemned in the eyes of God unless we're saved by the work of Jesus. Sin is the rich oppressing the poor. It is the conditions and the environment of this life. And so according to their message, our responsibility is to change the environment, the social conditions and make things better for people. And that is how you accomplish the kingdom purposes of God. And so this has been kind of classified, and and this is some really helpful terminology. Hang on to these terms and these categories of thinking because you're going to encounter these in various degrees as you look at how people approach ministering to others. There are those who are transformationalists, and their main focus is going to be that it is our job to transform Society, so that it's basically heaven on earth, okay? Transformationalists. The social gospel movement fits more in that transformational side of things. 
Okay? People will approach culture from the idea of this transformationalist approach. That our mission in life is to transform culture. And you'll, you'll hear those that focus on transformationalism. They'll say things like, we need to be redeeming culture. And so we're going to look at these various cultures within these various movements. Like I listened to a lecture called Redeeming Queer Culture. And we're going to look at queer culture and all the stuff that goes on in there. And we're going to try and find the, the things that we agree with or that are good. And we're going to emphasize those things and we're going to redeem queer culture. Well, that's a transformationalist approach to culture. The problem I have with something like redeeming queer culture is that when you do find something within queer culture that is good, it's that they have borrowed from true biblical culture. They have borrowed from a biblical worldview there is nothing in queer culture in and of itself or distinctive to queer culture that can be good because the whole thing is centered around sexual perversion. And so when there are things within queer culture like chosen family, this was something that this particular speaker brought out, chosen family. I would say that since many people who come out as queer are rejected by their own family, then they choose who their family will be. And then they say, that's more consistent like with Christianity because people become Christians and then they're rejected by non-Christian families and so they have chosen family. And so you see, we're redeeming queer culture. Yeah, but why are queer people being rejected by their families? It's because of their sin. It's not like Christians who follow Jesus and then Ended up, end up being rejected by unbelievers, you see. So our job isn't to redeem queer culture. Our job is to preach the gospel so that those who want to live as queer see the error of their ways and they repent and they want to follow Jesus. So transitional. And the other is conversional. Transitional, conversional. Conversional says that the main focus or mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that souls are saved and that even if those individuals end up suffering in life, they have a gift, a treasure, which cannot be taken away from them and they are blessed by God. And then you'll see varying degrees. You'll see some that lean toward conversional, but they have some areas that where they think it can be transformational. And you'll see some who uh, lean towards transformational, but they still focus on gospel conversion. But those two categories can be helpful to think through. Now, one thing that should be clear to us, consider and turn over to Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus gives the Great Commission, okay? Um, you realize, what do we call this? What did I just call it? The Little Commission. There's a reason it's called the Great Commission. And it is because these are Jesus' marching orders for his disciples. Putting in a nutshell what God has called his people to go forth and do. 
Okay. This is significant. What has Jesus called us to go forth and do? And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What are we to do? We're to go to make disciples. What are we to teach them? All the things that Jesus has commanded. And they're to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The central thrust, the simple, central message is we make people to be disciples of Jesus. Not, we eliminate their poverty, and if we eliminate their poverty, since they're really good at heart then they're just going to turn to the Lord or they're just going to live in righteousness because that which is holding them down, the poverty, is now gone. No, no. They need to be made disciples. They need to be taught everything that Jesus has commanded. Now, as we've already looked at, Jesus had a lot to command about being generous toward the poor. (laughs) And so do not hear anything that I am saying as trying to discourage you from wanting to give to those who are poor and needy. Not at all. Not at all. But we don't focus on a mission in the church that is not a mission given to us by God. That's not appropriate. Nor do we fall into false teaching and ideas like people are good at heart and we just got to fix poverty and that's going to fix society. No, that doesn't fix society. Can rich people be wicked? Can rich people steal? Yeah, just having money, just having good things, just being provided for does not lead to automatically... People being right with God. And and here's one of the big differences between transformational and conversional. We recognize that even if someone gains the whole world, but they lose their soul. That ultimately they have gained nothing. And so we're more concerned about people gaining their souls. I would rather someone starve to death and go to be with Jesus than be perfectly healthy, live to be 108 years old with no worries in this life and then die and go to hell. One of the problems with those that hold to the social gospel is that they would never walk into a homeless shelter, look those men in the eyes and say, Sirs, you are rebels against God and you must repent and believe in Jesus Christ or you will be damned. The thing that's so diabolical about the social justice movement is it makes victims out of rebels. And everybody believes that they're a victim. They're a victim of this and they're a victim of that. And as long as you believe 
and live with the mentality that you're a victim, then you will never believe Romans chapter 8, which says that in Christ Jesus, you are more than conquerors. You are mega conquerors, super conquerors in Christ. And it even says there, we're counted like sheep for the slaughter. We are killed all day long, but we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You see, so these attitudes that are pushed over here are diabolical, contrary to the gospel, and we have to be wary of them, or we will be deceived and go astray. I want to transition now, and let's look very briefly at the biblical order of priorities for materially giving. So if Let's put it this way. If you've got an extra dollar to spend and you've got an equally needy believer or unbeliever, who do you give it to? Let's look at that question in a nutshell. And then we're going to close by looking at the issue of is it permissible for the government to be involved in welfare for those who are needy, for the civil government? So, first of all, biblical principles in regard to Material provision. First, is this if you are an individual whom God says is responsible to provide for your own needs, then you must provide for your own needs first. You must provide for your own needs first. One, one passage is Second Thessalonians chapter three. And with these, I'm just going to turn to them and read them and work through this quickly. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 10, it says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So what's the basic principle there? If you are required by God to provide for yourself and you refuse to work, you're not to be given charity. So you are to provide for yourself. Look over at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to start with verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is not, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. And notice verse five, for each one shall bear his own load. So here we see the balance of bear one another's burdens, but each one is to bear his own load. A burden, as mentioned, that needs to be borne by the community of Christ would be the equivalent of somebody has a two-ton boulder on their leg and there is no way they can get that off. They need help. Something that cannot be done by others. They need the body of Christ to come around them and help them. 
bearing one's own load would be like, I have a 10-pound weight, a bag of groceries, and I need to carry it from my car to the house. And as long as I'm capable of carrying that, I have a responsibility to do it. Okay? So the, the basic principle here is each one bears his own load, and then the whole, the body, is not overburdened by trying to carry all the burdens of people that can carry their own burdens. Just makes sense, right? Pull your own weight. We can just summarize it, paraphrase it as that. Pull your own weight. If everybody's pulling their own weight, then the whole can pull a lot more weight. It's kind of like in tug-of-war. used to be an Olympic sport, I think, tug-of-war. I don't know that it is anymore. Any of you ever played tug-of-war? Got a bunch of people lined up, each on the end of a rope. Well, what happens if you got five guys on one side and five guys on the other, but only four guys are pulling on the one side? They're going to be at a big disadvantage, right? Because they're not all pulling their own weight. So the Bible calls us to pull our own weight to provide for our own needs. Secondly, the Bible tells us that if we are responsible to provide for those in our household, that we must do that. So after you individually provide for your own needs and pull your own weight, next stage is you provide for those within your own household. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter five and verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his own household or for his own and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see how serious this is. That's serious. If you have a responsibility to provide for those in your own household and you don't do it you are actually denying the faith and you are worse than an unbeliever. One, you're denying the faith because Jesus gave the commandment to obey everything that he has commanded and you are violating that commandment. You're worse than an unbeliever because even unbelievers generally have the sense that you provide for your own, you look after your own. And it's a messed up society or culture that ditches the idea of men especially refusing to be providers and protectors and looking out for those under their care. And we are going there. We're on a freight train heading in that direction. Why? Because it's been all transferred over to the government. The government provides and you're victims and you you, you got to you know, get a handout in certain categories of people in virtue of your race or minority status or whatever it is, you're a victim. And so everybody else owes it to you. That's deadly. That's deadly. We got to go back to a time that says men stand up, protect, provide, look after those under your care, or you are a deadbeat. You are a deadbeat and you're violating the law of Christ, and you're acting worse than an unbeliever. Shape up, buddy. So you provide for yourself, you provide for your own household. Next, there's a responsibility 
to provide for fellow believers. So let's say you provided for the basic necessities of yourself. You provided for the necessities of your household. We already saw this morning, we looked at several passages of Scripture that indicate we should seek to have more than just enough for our basic provisions so that we can give to those who are in need. And you see that in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when it talks about those who are rich in this life being willing to give generously. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, where it says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work with his hands so that he will have that which is needed to give to those who are in need. Okay, so God calls us to seek to have more than just enough to provide for ourselves or even our own families. But then who are we to look to help next? We are to look toward needy believers. Needy believers. Last week I outlined, and you can notice it again in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that for a widow to be taken into the number and have all of her material needs met by the church, she had to be a believer and she had to be very godly and she had to be over 60 years old. There were qualifications to be met. We noted last week that in ministering to the poor, the focus of the church was to minister to poor believers. There are not marching orders in the scriptures given to local churches to become the welfare system for an entire nation. Now, it is not absolutely wrong for a church to provide for needy unbelievers in the community. That's not wrong. But it is not the mission of the church to do that. That's not the mission of the church. And I simply say that because you can't find it in the scriptures taught that that's the mission of the church. Okay? Some churches are so focused on that that they put their time and resources into that and the gospel and the, the teaching of the whole counsel of God is neglected. But I can tell you from examination of the scriptures, which is the mission of the church. First Timothy chapter three says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Those who minister in the church are to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And then those within the church are to provide for the needs of one another and provide for the needs of needy believers around this world. And that's exactly what we see the early church doing. If you look back to Galatians chapter six, once again, we see in principle where the priority of giving is for us as believers. And the priority is that we are to give to other believers. Now, this may seem counterintuitive. You know, I posed that question at the beginning. Okay, if you've got a dollar, if you've got a dollar to give to someone, your needs are all met. You've met all the needs of anybody within your household. That's all taken care of. You've got an extra dollar. And here's an unbeliever and here's a believer and they're both hungry. Who do you give the dollar to? 
We might think, well, give it to the unbeliever because if we give it to the unbeliever, then they're going to see our generosity and they might become a Christian, etc., etc. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we, first of all, look after believers. And then, after that, we also look after unbelievers. You tell me if I'm misinterpreting this statement in Galatians chapter 6. In verse 9. Let's jump back to verse 7 for a moment. Let's jump back to verse (laughs) 6. This even helps with the context. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. What that says in a nutshell is pay your pastors. That's what that's what that's teaching. All good things. It's in the context of material provision, bearing your own burdens, etc., etc. The good things there is talking about those who are taught the word, sharing in the good things with him who teaches. Material provision for pastors. It's not my sermon today. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now notice this in verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Notice the principle here. We're to seek to do good to all people, but who especially are we supposed to provide for, look after? The household of faith, believers, right? And guess what? If we are looking after one another in that way, then we will be less of a burden on society and we will be more equipped to be able to care for and minister to unbelievers in society. But if our household is not in order and we're not caring for one another, then we're not going to be able to reach out and be a consistent example of caring for others outside of the household of faith. But you see the principle there. What did it say in 1 Timothy chapter 5? Household. What do you see here? Household. You look after your own household. We have a household here. As a local church, we have a household of believers. Our first priority after we look after ourselves and look after our families is to make sure that everybody who is here worshiping together is provided for. And I've seen you guys do that. I've seen people who have had material need in this congregation, and I've seen other people just step up and give. I have benefited from that, as well as my family and I being able to bless people with that. Because the way that life usually works, guys, is we'll find ourselves in need at times, and then we'll find ourselves with extra at times. (laughs) That's the way life usually works for all of us. But I'm blessed to be a part of this congregation because you know what? One, I have no concerns whatsoever that if any of you lose job or get hurt or whatever it is and and you don't have any 
way to provide for food. You don't have a shelter over your head. I have no concern whatsoever that you're going to be out in the cold. Because I know how we roll here and I know people are going to be around you and they're going to help you and minister to you. I've seen it happen. And that's what God would have us to do. So there, so there we go. You provide for yourself as an individual. You provide for those in your own household. You provide for needy believers like in your church family and then needy believers extended elsewhere. And then the next example is to provide for unbelievers. And again, when we look at the church as an organization, it's not giving as, given as a marching order to the church that you were to make as a primary mission or goal, setting up all kinds of charitable things to minister to unbelievers. More the idea is unbelievers should be looking in and seeing how well we care for one another and they should say, I want to be a part of that. Look at how generous these people are. Look at how much they give. But then also as individuals, remember, we looked at. As individuals, we are to be generous even to non-believers. In order to be a blessing to them. Okay. The last segment for today then is considering the issue of government welfare and is it biblical in any way shape or form first of all i want to say i think that our government needs welfare reform because i believe that there are multiple different areas in which we do it poorly but then there are some areas in which i think we do it well and we'll see some of those Areas as we look at a couple of scriptures together. But first of all, the big picture is it biblical in any way, shape, or form for civil government to be involved in welfare by using tax dollars to provide good, goods and services to those who are needy within the nation? My answer is yes. It is. Biblical and proper. And I would base it on Deuteronomy chapter 14. So let's look there. So sometimes it's been said the government should get out of charity, they should get out of welfare. That's the job of the church. I don't I don't see that outlined as the job of the church in the scriptures. But I do see principles in the scriptures that say that the government can be involved. So my thing is, it's both and. Why not? Why make it an either or? When believers can be helping. When churches are permitted to, although it's not their mission and they don't have to be having all of these organizations and everything. Why make it a both and or an either or when it can be a both and? Deuteronomy chapter 14. And Deuteronomy chapter 14 talks about taxes. Now, you may see a different word here. The word is tithing. But the tithe was a tax in Israel. 
And here's why I say that. If you, did, if you define a tax as something that the government compels you to give, monetary funds or material things that the government compels you to give in order to maintain the functioning of the government and perhaps even then to be redistributed to those that are needy, etc., the tithes were absolutely a tax. Did God, did God, as we look through these, is God going to say, uh, you only have to give these if you want to? No, it was commanded. It was compulsory. It was mandatory. Were there offerings above and beyond the tithes that people could give willingly? Yes, they could. Okay, so the, the tithes were a tax. Furthermore, and this is very important, I'm going to mention this because as you're trying to interpret the Old Testament scriptures, here's a key, key, key principle. And if you miss this, you're going to miss a lot of proper interpretation. Okay, so listen very carefully. With so much of the Bible, we interpret it by way of analogy. We may not have. Well, let's just put it this way. We are not Old Testament Israel living in the land of Israel, right? We're not. So is there anything that applies to us in here whatsoever? Yes, there is. But we look for ways in which our circumstances are similar, analogous to. Let's take it to the New Testament level. Are we the church in Corinth? Are, are we the church in Thessalonica? Are we the Galatians? We're none of these. Those letters were written directly to them. Does that mean they have nothing for us? Not at all. Why? Because we find ways in which our circumstances are similar to theirs, and we apply the principles based on analogy. You see what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? So it's, you know, it's kind of like if there was a law written in Yellville, and then that law is proposed at our state legislator, and our state legislator passes it, but it was initially crafted in Yellville. If the state legislator passes it, it means it applies to the whole state, right? Not just to Yellville. So. Even though this wasn't initially written to us, we apply it to us. The nation of Israel was not like the United States of America. We have more of a clear division of powers in the United States of America. You may, you may not know it, but I'm not on the state legislature automatically as a pastor. Do we do we say, well, you're a pastor, so you are automatically involved in, in the civil government as a pastor? No. We have more of a separation of church and state in that respect, right? There was not such a separation of church and state in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was a sacral society. One example of that is guess who was to decide a civil case 
if it was too difficult for the people in the local, the local cities. God said, take it to the priests and let them decide. In the United States of, of America, if there's a local city council and they've got an issue they don't understand, are they going to say, okay, well, the law tells us to go ahead and take it to the pastors and let the pastors decide this one? <laughs> no. You see, it's very different than in the nation of Israel. It was a sacral society. The laws regarding the worship of God and the laws regarding not stealing from your neighbor were all part of the same legal code. So it's very different than in the United States of America. So when the people are told to tithe, and those tithes are going to go to the temple and the care of the temple and the giving to the poor, etc., etc., you see, because the temple and everything else was all part of the legal system, it is similar to to taxes today which don't go to pay for churches and I'm fine with that that's that's fine in new covenant era okay I'm not saying we need to switch that around but you see as we're trying to draw analogies we're trying to say how is this similar to governments today we need to understand this you tracking with me you understand what I'm saying so look at these look at these ties that are mentioned here And as you think about it, I'm going to give you a, a, a leading question here to lead us into this. What percentage do you think annually an average Israelite had to pay in tithes, i.e. taxes? Hmm? It was close. It was close to 30 percent, actually. You might think tithe. Oh, 10 percent. Well, they're supposed to pay 10 percent. No. There were two tithes of 10% that are outlined in this passage. And then there was a once every third year tithe of 10%, which would take you to 23.3 or whatever percent. And then if you had fields, you had to leave the edges of your fields so that the poor could come in, which added another percentage. And then for all the males, they had to pay a shekel as a head tax to the temple. And so when it comes down to it, the average would have been about 25% of income, and that would have been a flat rate that came out of the gross of everything that you had right off the top. Okay? So notice here, though, because one of these is significant, one of these 10%, though, you got to actually use this in the worship for yourself and your family. It didn't just go to the government to get distributed to others, okay? So this is really fascinating. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 14 here. Verse 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. You shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, Jerusalem. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and of your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. The word tithe means a tenth, which is 10%, okay? 
So this first tithe, it's saying, you're to take this and you're to buy food and drink. And when you travel to worship God in Jerusalem, you're to celebrate, you're to feast. You're to use this to enjoy what the Lord has given you and and enjoy how the Lord has provided for you in worship. So there was a mandatory, God said, take 10% of all your produce and everything else and celebrate with it. God's a killjoy, isn't he? (laughs) God's just a killjoy. He doesn't like party. He doesn't like feasting. He's like, you just need to be an ascetic, you know, go live, go live in a cave and eat moldy crusts of bread and water all your life. No, I mean, he commanded this of his people. Celebrate, feast. So that was the one 10 percent. It says if the journey is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe. So if you've got if you if. If your fields uh, produced 100 bushels of grain, the tithe would be 10 bushels of grain. It's like if you've got to travel, you know, 100 miles by foot to Jerusalem, don't think you've got to carry 10 bushels of grain with you all the way there. Go ahead and convert it to money. And then when you get there, buy food and drink and everything else so that you can feast. Okay? There's the one 10% that's mentioned. You shall spend, verse 26, the money for whatever your heart desires. Auction, sheep, wine, similar drink. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice, you and your household. But then it says, you shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. And this ties into, in other passages of Scripture, 10% was to go to the Levite's amongst whom the priests were were derived from to provide for the worship in the temple. I don't have time, but the Levites were basically the civil servants of Israel. Levites looked after the temple. Levites led the singing. The Levites engaged in charitable activities for the poor in their communities. The Levites had many functions. They were basically the civil servants. So some of our tax money goes to pay civil servants in the United States, people in various occupations, police forces, firefighters, other types of folks. The Levites were basically the civil servants. They were paid a tithe or a 10%. But then look at verses 28 and 29. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe, 10% of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. It was to be centrally collected and located. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, the stranger, the gur, the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. Here was a mandatory compulsory tithe, which was to be collected up centrally and redistributed to those who were needy within the society. Based on this and God doing this in his economy, I cannot say that it is sinful for a government to take some of our tax dollars, a reasonable percentage, and distributing it to those who are truly needy 
within our society. That's what God did in the land that he established and with the laws that he put in place. But notice here it says, those people are to come and collect it. In the passages that talk about leaving the grain on the edges of your field so that the poor and the, the gur and the others you know, that are in these categories can come, it says, so that they can come and collect it. So they had a responsibility still to provide for themselves by going and collecting it. And so that's a principle which needs to be in place for some type of government welfare is that they have to do something in order to collect it or to earn it in some respect within their capabilities. Okay? But God saw to it, we close with this, God saw to it that the nation of Israel would be provided for, would be blessed if you... Go on and maybe you're interested to study this out further. Read chapter 15 as well. Because God makes some interesting statements there. He says in the land that you're going to. He says you will not have poverty. But in the same passage, he says in the land that you're going to, the poor will always be amongst you. So so what's what's the deal? He's explaining that by your generosity to the poor, that's the provision to see that there aren't any poor. Now, directly analogous to that is within the church. But again, it is still based on personal responsibility. You don't just give to people that are being lazy. But if someone truly falls poor... They're to be provided for. And I think, again, it's both and that the government can be involved in this righteously. Individual believers involved in this righteously. It is not one of the main missions of the local churches. To do this. But they're not necessarily sinning to be involved in it either. So much more could could be said it would be really fun maybe i'm not going to do it during this series but sometime we could try and find the the principles what about principles about leaving the corner of your fields and how does that apply to if you're an employer and a business owner you see we could find principles there that would encourage business owners to give to charity of their profits and not just say oh if we've if we've you know had a more profitable quarter that means we're just going to we're just going to pay our CEOs and our you know CF you know COOs and everybody else we're just going to pay them more no you know we can use some of this to actually give to those that are needy and give even a percentage so a lot could be said about this and it be someday maybe we'll look into this in detail but study it out for yourself it's a fascinating study find those analogies consider how they apply today And may we live for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had here today to delve into these things. I ask that you would uh, bless our thinking, sanctify it, hone it from your word. May you receive the glory for it. I pray now for the meal that we'll partake of and the feasting. 
May we truly rejoice in you and be thankful that you've given us these things. And may we eat it to your glory and delight in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's stand, let's stand and sing the doxology.